Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help us build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Incahunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Well, hey there, Dr. Robin. How are you doing during quarantine? Are you queering the to, quarantine well? I'm trying to queer the quarantine, actually. Well, you try to queer everything. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, so what are we, what are we talking about today? What are we, what are we diving into? Well, um, I know that you and I spent a lot of time talking about dismantling supremacy culture and trying right. to transform our society. And I thought it might be fun to reach out to Layla Saad, um, who did the 20 day challenge on Instagram last year called White Supremacy and Me. And she's really remarkable. Yeah. And so we're talking about white privilege. We're talking about um, supremacy culture as it relates to ourselves and in the ways that we've internalized it, which is, which is important work. That's, that's how we decolonize. That's how we dismantle supremacy culture is by first changing ourselves and then changing the world. Right. I think, you know, we, we get really caught up in wanting to fix everybody else, wanting to identify how others are wrong and how others can do better and how, you know, we, we have this, we have this tendency to say, well, thank goodness I'm not like them or thank God I right. have arrived and I have done more work than they have. And I am, uh, you know, I, I recognize my privilege more than they do. And I identify right. supremacy culture when I see it. And yet there's still so much in each one of us that really, you know, is, is, un, it's something that we just haven't tapped into. And I, I love that. I love that we're looking internally. I love that we're, you know, peeling away our own onion skins and layers and trying to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to be better humans uh, yeah. so that, so that, it is it is through us that others change versus um <laughs> asking others to to do the work when we haven't you know felt inclined to do it on ourselves yet yeah i mean you make a good point instead of imposing on others how to be different we are really taking it seriously on how to change ourselves and i talk a lot about being quite passing um while also being latinx and you know, even I have to decolonize and dismantle what I've internalized as supremacy culture and white supremacy. And I think that during this time of quarantine, you can really see on the news the prevalence of supremacy culture. 
um, by calling right. COVID-19 the, the, chi- the Chinese virus, for example, and the ways that the narrative gets spun in a certain way that um, promotes supremacy. Um, so we're trying to do that work um, in ourselves. Yeah, I love it. And I love that Layla has agreed to join us. And I think this conversation is going to be one that a lot of folks are going to find to be exactly what they need during these days. Um, And I hope that any of you who are sequestered or quarantined in your homes have gone back and listened to all of the podcasts that precede this one. I think they're, they are all a good setup for some of the conversation that we're about to have with Layla and um, if nothing else, we, you know, we want you to be caught up on on what the Activist Theology podcast is saying and doing in the world. Um, and I um, I'm just really, really grateful that that we're doing this together. Well, we're very excited to have Leila Saad with us today on the Activist Theology Project. Um, I've been really inspired by. Her work um, on Instagram and listened to the audiobook and did the workbook and feel very privileged that we have a chance to be engaged with her um, today. Welcome, Layla. Thank you. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So just to let everyone know, um, from where are you speaking and um, how's your community doing? I know that we are living in the midst of a global pandemic. And so we just want to make sure that you and your family and your people are doing okay. Can you let us um, give us an update? Yes. So I, um, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm British, um, but my accent is not quite the same as a lot of British people because I um, grew up in Wales, um, was born and grew up in Wales, um, lived in the UK, I've lived in East Africa and Tanzania. My parents are East African. Um, and now I live in Qatar and I've lived here for quite a while. And so it's, you know, this global pandemic is, is affecting all of us. It's really bringing us together. We're really sharing this um these strange times that we're living in and how it's being experienced here in Qatar at the moment. My, I have two young kids and um, they're 10 and five and they're at home. They've, we've been homeschooling for the last week um, or remote learning with the school. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband, his work have just um, basically said, you know, staff need to work from home. So he's going to be working from home from next week. He, heads up the IT department. So he's in charge of making sure that everybody has oh, wow. everything. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that's a lot. Um, and it's yeah. not a small company. Uh, it's a large company. So he's um, working with that. So he's going to be more in work sort of back and forth for mm-hmm. myself. I work from home, but I'm also highly introverted and I like a lot of alone time. So it's interesting having everyone home at the same yeah. time um, and while trying to work from home and while, um, uh, taking care of my kids. Um, but I'm really thankful that we're all safe. We're all well. My parents who live not too far from us are also well. Um, we're just trying to, you know, be safe, you know, be sensible, yeah. put the social distancing as much as possible and, and ride this thing out. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if you're seeing the same thing in, your community as as I'm seeing here in Nashville, Tennessee, in middle America, 
That is, a lot of the grocery stores, a lot of the shelves are empty because people are buying up as much as they can. Is that a phenomenon that is happening in your local context? There certainly has been some, I would say, some hysteria in people trying to buy everything up, but it's not to the levels that I'm seeing in the media as it's happening um, across the, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't there isn't a lack of, of, of things. Every day they get replaced. Um, it's just that people are in that fear of, right. but what if? But what if it runs out? And that you know, um, for us at home, we haven't been taking part in that. I think, you know, I always say to my husband, if the things run out, it's because we buy it all, not right. because they, not because we don't have it. Right. Um, it's certainly um, a lot more ramped up from what I can see in the media in the United States than it is mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's certainly very uncertain times, very strange times, and yeah. we really don't know how to be community is what I'm learning through this. Um, right. We know how to be individuals, and and I wonder if, you know, you've done so much work on addressing internalized white supremacy. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how some of that fear that that you mentioned that we all have Mm. is is part of the way that we internalize supremacy culture at large. and, and ways that we can kind of combat that um, during this time of global hysteria. Yeah, this is actually something that I posted about today online, um, and it was born from a conversation I was having with my mentor this week, because, you know, I, just like everyone else, am experiencing all kinds of feelings as we go through these rapid transitions. Every day there's a new update um, suddenly the schools are closed. Now the shops are closed. We can't go here that we can't go there. Mm-hmm. And it's happening in a very concentrated space of time. And I think our natural tendency as human beings is to want to feel a sense of safety and stability and security. And we're not feeling that now. And, and I yeah. know from myself just how I felt that it brings up a lot of fear and a lot of feelings of scarcity and a lot of feelings of loss. And, I was really reflecting with my mentor on how when we talk about dismantling, you know, what does that look like? What did we think that was going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is what it looks like. Unfortunately, yeah. it's not, it's not peaceful. It's not safe. It's not pretty. It's not predictable. It is the tearing down of structures in a way, um, that re- that really allows us to usher in a new reality or to help create a new reality. But without the tearing down, you can't have the rebuilding. Mm. And so I think this time is really inviting all of us to explore questions that we would not have to explore if we were in the comfort zone of what we know makes us usually safe. That's right. Yeah. Right. And so at the same time though, you know, I think for those who have, who have privilege, and I'll speak from the perspective of white privilege because that's where my work is, is primarily focused on. But obviously, as we know, all of these systems interconnect with each other. Mm-hmm. But particularly when it comes to 
white privilege. You know, I say in my work, like, why even look at this? You know, what is the incentive? Because doing this work is hard. It's uncomfortable. You know, you, you're going to feel more bad than good as you go through it. You know, um, it's going to really cause you to question everything that you knew as reality. And for a lot of people, they're just not willing to go there to do that. Mm-hmm. And times such as these really are like pivotal key moments in history where people can see what's happening and make a real choice about whether they're going to choose to open up to this work on a deeper level or continue to stay in that fear and anxiety and try to cling on to that privilege. And I think it's a really revealing time of our humanity, how we choose to respond in times such as these. And so I wonder, I wonder, do you, I, I agree with you from a standpoint of kind of this feeling very disruptive and, and us being able to live into the possibility of how we can further, we can, you know, kind of look at this as the, the way that we move ourselves into a dismantling. It, it, it almost gives us a few other options. Um, do we think that that's going to be possible if, if we continue to be as isolated as we are? I mean, I, I, I'm, I am, I'm challenged with the need to disrupt systems and dismantle systems, but the siloing that's occurring for individuals right now, you know, within their own spaces, yeah. um, how do we mitigate the, the physical, the need for the physical barrier right now in these times and also move our communities into that possibility of disruption. Yeah. And this is a time where if, if this had, ha- if, 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 if we think about like when the, you know, influenza global pandemic happened, right? A long time ago that we were in a different time of the history then where if we had to self quarantine, we were really separated from each other. There's no, there's no phoning each other. There's no, you know, there's no getting, you know, there's test time. There's nothing. We would really right. be isolated. And one of the things that is, has always been this double edged sword is social media and the internet. And what I'm seeing and I, and what I think this time is inviting many of us into is how can we use these technologies that we've created to foster community, to show up for each other in ways we hadn't, we haven't yet done in order to continue to create community, which is something as human beings that we just need on a really visceral level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm excited that as I see people begin to really look at, you know, like I'll scroll through my Instagram and I see people doing story time for kids. Um, I see people looking at how can I use what I already teach or what I already offer and offer it in this new way that I, I didn't have to before because I really need community and I really want to offer community. And so for the creatives, for the artists, for the leaders, for the healers, you know, for the people who have, have whatever gift it is inside of themselves that they are here to offer to the world. This is really a time to leverage these technologies to be able to create community. I don't mm-hmm. think that we can 
think about social distancing as really shutting ourselves off from everything entirely. You know, we are physically distancing each other, ourselves from each other for a period of time for the, you know, to flatten the curve and for the, for the, even if we don't get it so that we don't pass it on to other people, we're doing that for a period of time. Um, but even in that period of time, you know, just being cut off from each other, even if it's just for a few weeks is a big deal. Like it, it impacts us. And for those of us who maybe suffer with anxiety or depression, you know, who need community, this is a time when I see it being offered by many different people. And it's, it's exciting because I think about when this, when we're not in the kind of, um, the height of it that we're getting into right now, once that we've gotten to the other side of the curve, where, what is the world then? Because nothing will ever be the same again. Mm. Yes. Nothing will ever be the same again. Which on some level is a blessing, right? Right. Because we need things to change. Yeah. And, and it's really about looking at like, what things did we think that we needed to have that we didn't actually need to have? Right. And what things did we do? What things didn't we realize we could use in different ways? So I look at, so for example, I'm thinking, I was thinking about, um, um, therapy, um, because I worked with a therapist for a period of time. We, we finished our work together and it was a really wonderful, um, relationship, but because of where I live, I couldn't find the type of therapy support that I needed. So I worked through, um, the, the better help platform, um, that offers, you know, distance therapy and it was a yeah. wonderful um, relationship and I, it really helped me so much, but most people are looking at therapy in person. You know, a lot of mm. people are not going to be able to get that support right now. Yeah. You know, you're going to see, I'm sure a shift after the curve is, is, you know, flattened out or we get to the other side of it that more people are using services such as those and really, you know, really expanding. Cause in the past before, you know, you couldn't imagine doing therapy online. You had to go into the therapist's office. And that became something that some people were using out of necessity. And now I wonder if after this time, it's, it's just become part of the norm. Yeah. Yeah. It'll definitely be interesting to see how our, how, how our culture shifts mm-hmm. both in, both in ways that, um, are, are positive for those of us that are trying to, you know, look at a, at a shift in power and, and capitalism and yeah. supremacy culture and also how it, how our culture changes in ways that, reaffirm some of the norms that the problematic norms that that we see on an everyday basis. Yes. And that's the other side of it, right? Like it's an invitation and some people hear the call to the invitation and, and reach, uh, rise up to meet it. And some people are using this really as an opportunity to um, continue to uplift themselves as individuals at the expense of everybody else. And we have that problem in the United States. I mean, with our political officials, it is highly problematic right now, especially with our, our president Mm -hmm. who, you know, has now taken to, you know, xenophobic language around the name of the virus itself um, is doubling down on calling it the China virus. Right. When, you know, our, our CDC and the World Health Organization have clearly given it a name that identifies it in a way that 
um, takes it out of makes it makes it not punitive in any way or, right. or racist in any way. And and yet in common form, in standard form for this uh, dictator that's, you know, that's that's so that says he's managing our country. I mean, we are watching it it unfold in ways that are just I mean, disgusting, quite frankly. Right. Yeah. It, and, it, it, and, and, you know, he knows what he's doing when he does. That. Yeah. 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 Um, because if we can get, if we can make, if we can make this thing, the fault of, of the other, mm-hmm. then, then we can say it's not our, I don't, I can't be responsible for what happens. It's them, not, not me. It's them, right. not us. Um, and, and which is a complete abdication of responsibility of the, of, of, of the power that they hold, the privilege that they hold and the responsibility that they hold to, um, to everybody. So yeah, it's, um, they, they know what they're doing. And, and we've seen him do that, not take responsibility. I mean, he said that on national news that he has not taken responsibility for this. And I wonder if Layla, you could talk a little bit about, how the creation of the other, we really see that exacerbated in this moment right now. Right. And how, and right. how that is, that is part of the fuel that fuels white supremacy and other supremacy cultures. I'm wondering how, you, if you could talk a little bit about how we then internalize the creation of the other that um, vilifies anyone who is not like us. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when we talk about what the definition of white supremacy is, it's this belief that people who are white or who look white are inherently superior to people of other races. Right. And therefore they, they deserve to dominate over those people of other races. So in order to be superior, there has to be someone who is inferior. In order to be privileged, there have to be people who are not privileged. And, you know, I remember I mean, this is just coming to mind. There's a, there's a clip of, um, Toni Morrison speaking and she was being interviewed and she was asking, you know, who are you? I'm, I'm completely paraphrasing. Sure. Basically, do you know who you are without this thing called whiteness? Like, are you, are you any good? Do you like yourself? Mm. You know, if there isn't somebody to be other, if there isn't somebody who is lesser than you, do you know who you are? And, this this um mechanism this this practice of othering people is you know it's not it's not grounded in any biological fact it has nothing to do with biology it is a completely social construct that has very real consequences around the world but right. its its purpose is to separate so that one can be inherent inherently dumb dominant over mm-hmm. and we don't live we don't live we've never lived in a time where collectively people who are white know have ever experienced what it feels like to be the same mm-hmm. not area the same and there is this idea and i see it when people are introduced to anti-racism work to this kind of dismantling work that they feel like they're being asked to be that they're being asked for the kind of uh, coin to be flipped, that instead of being superior, they now have to be inferior. Mm-hmm. Because it always has to be this hierarchical thing rather than understanding what equ- equity and equality and being the same actually means. We don't know what that looks like. 
And so I really um, appreciate the work of black feminist writers and thinkers who, you know, I'm thinking especially right now of people like Octavia Butler, whose mm-hmm. work is just, especially the, the Parable series, is really just, I mean, for me, the, the Parable series informed so much of what went into how I show up in um, the me and my white supremacy work. And it's why I open and close the book with passages from those books. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially in this time where we're talking about a world going into a dystopia, systems have completely fallen apart. This is we're we're living it, right? We're, yeah. we're experiencing yeah. just a, like a, just a little bit of what that might look like. And the, the protagonists in those books and, and in many of, um, Octavia Butler's books are these people who have the ability to imagine a world, to have the courage to imagine a world unlike what we have seen before and to imagine a life and a new imagining of humanity that we've never seen before. And so we need that right now. We need that imagination. We need that creativity. We need those people who are really, especially for the people who are like seen as being on the, on on the margins, the marginalized, Mm -hmm. they're able to dream that new world in a way that those who are privileged cannot because they've never had. Right. You know, one of the things that Anna and I are doing through the Activist Theology Project is in a time when the creation of the other is exacerbated and the other is vilified, we're creating these open Zoom calls for people just to jump on so that we can foster togetherness in a time of social distancing. And I feel that one of the ways that we can respond to the xenophobia and explicit white supremacy in our context is to foster an ethics of togetherness in as much, and yeah. in, in as much as we can. And so I think that, you know, making little moves against destructiveness is what we can do in, in a time when, when a new reality is emerging. And maybe we can breathe life into these spaces that would otherwise be silenced and vilified otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so necessary. And I, you know, I wrote today um, when I posted, I wrote about love and, and courage and, and, you know, these are words that we, we see a lot, but you know, what do they, what do they mean? You know? And, and in this time, I really think, we're being called to that radical sense of love, that radical sense of courage, the, not the comfortable kind that is easy to do from your, like your comfort zone, right. but really to, to put yourself out there for others to offer space while at the same time, not depleting yourself. And right. this is something that, um, you know, when we talk about walking that line between individualism and, and community, you know, something that, I have had to learn, um, thanks to my, my mentor, Dr. Frantonia Pollins, is I can't give to community in a way that depletes me because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And it will eventually mean that it will create, it will recreate the very thing that I'm trying to fight. Yeah. 
you know, it will re it will recreate it eventually because I'll get resentful right. and then it will impact you and then it will create scarcity and, and all of that. So I have to be filling myself up and then having this, um, community where we are, um, uh, having this back and forth of energy bouncing off of each other without taking from each other, mm-hmm. um, but really being in support of each other. And so, you know, we're, 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 we're learning. I feel like we're learning in real time. Yeah. You know, that's, that's <laughs> there's the truth. Really, yeah. Right. The there's, truth. So, there's so many lessons that we've learned before now that yes, we're hard, you know, on our individual and, and collective journeys that we're hard and we've learned them, but we didn't learn them in times such as these. Mm-hmm. And we're really being called to put in, put, put it into practice. So I wonder if we could go a little deeper on that. You, yeah. I mean, you do a lot of, of really beautiful, um, work around kind of the need for this ancestral rootedness. Yeah. Um, and, and understanding, you know, kind of what being a good ancestor looks like. Yeah. How do you, how do you, um, how do you see the work of your ancestors affording you the knowledge for times like these? Mm. Oh, that's such a, that's such a good question. My, so I have, um, my maternal grandmother is the, um, all, all of my, um, grandparents have, have passed away, but my maternal grandmother is the one who is often in my dreams. And out of all of like the grandchildren, I think she comes in my dreams the most often. <laughs> and, um, and she was in my dream just a few nights a- a- ago and she was young and she was extremely happy, just overjoyed. And it was so strange because I remember going to sleep that night, very stressed out, very anxious, very fearful, very scared, you know, things were moving very fast mm-hmm. and she was in a dream and she was just happy. She was so happy. And I, and I think about moments like that, um, of reminding me that you're not alone. Mm. You're not, you, you come from a, you come from a long line of people mm. and we have all in, endured various things and you're not going through this by yourself. You are held by us and you are held by your family. Even your descendants are looking back, even as we speak at how you endured in this time. Mm. Um, in in uh, the parable series, Octavia Butler's the parable series. You know, the protagonist is writing these um, passages, and I remember that striking me so much because I often think of people like Octavia Butler, people like Audre Lorde, you know, who have shaped so much of who I am. They were writing for themselves at that time, but I read their books, and I'm like, "You wrote this for me. Mm. You knew I was going to read this. You knew I was going to need it." You know. Um, I remember reading um, Audre Lorde's, um, uh, I've got it here actually, what's it called? The Cancer Journals. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, her sharing her very personal, very real experiences of being diagnosed with cancer and how she was, how she, how she was experiencing it and what she was processing from it and through it. And, you know, I haven't had cancer um, but the messages that it brought up served me so much. And, e- and so even while we're going through this time of fear and transition and uncertainty, I am thinking about, but when 
I'm gone and we look and the, our descendants look back on this period of time, what instructions, tools, guidance, affirmations, um, blueprints, you know, models will we have left them for how to endure what they will have to endure in their time? Mm-hmm. I love the question that Anna asked about ancestors, because I think that for white folks and folks who have been socialized to be white, and I would include myself as a white passing Latinx who at 12 moved to live with my white father and was socialized into whiteness and affluence in a way that caused me to internalize supremacy culture in particular ways. This cut me off from my ancestral understanding of coming from a Mexican line of, of people. And, and I wonder, I just love the question about ancestors because for white folks, um, we just don't have that orientation of thinking about ancestors and Layla, I just feel curious, like how might this, thinking about how do we be a good ancestor right now in a time of transition and uncertainty, how might this shift our own internalized supremacies when we, yeah. reorient, when we reorient toward becoming a good ancestor? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. So I host um, my own podcast, Good Ancestor Podcast, and I really endeavor on the podcast to to have the majority of my guests be people of color and black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but every now and then I've, you know, interviewed um, white people and I ask each guest the same question, which is, um, well, I ask them an opening question. That's the same. And a closing question. That's the same. And the opening question is um, who are the people, who are the ancestors alive or transitioned familial or societal who've influenced you on your journey Mm-hmm. And then the closing question is, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Most people can get the la- the, the closing question, who are white. It's the, it's the opening question. Yeah. That's really challenging. Um, because like you said, for a lot of people who are white, who are, um, socialized in whiteness, it's, there's a, there's, there seems to be a very fraught relationship there. Yeah. And, and I feel and I like there's a lot of white folks. There's, I, I apologize for interrupting. There's a lot of white folks that are, that believe that this, di- this journey into ancestry can be solved with, um, understanding family trees yeah. and the, like genealogy right, when yeah. it couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, right. that, that couldn't be farther from kind of what the concept of ancestral rootedness really is. Right, right. And so that brings me to what I was going to say, which is that part of the, the um, what's the word, like the contract that you make when you, when you accept that white privilege, like when you're conditioned into whiteness and how and you, you are privileged by whiteness, is that you have to cut off certain parts of yourself. You have to right. kind of make a difference. A deal with the devil, right? To, okay, I'm going to be privileged. I'm going to be the quote unquote superior race, but all of this ancestral wisdom, all of this ancestral rootedness, I don't have a connection to it anymore. Right. And certainly if I do, it's not, it's one that doesn't make me feel the way 
people of color feel about their ancestors. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's like when, um, you know, when we, uh, you know, when we have, I have like different like graphic t-shirts and there's one that I want to get that just says black woman, right? I saw yeah. it today on line and I was like, oh, I really want that. And I can imagine a white woman saying, but what if I were to walk around with a, a t-shirt that said white woman, wouldn't that be racist? And I guess it's, you know, it's because there's a different ancestrally, there was right. a different pride that we have as black people in being a black woman and what that has meant now in the present day, what we see with, with, um, like our friends and our sisters and our, our, um, family members and people out in the world and our, and, and our ancestors versus that connection that white women have with other white women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and so to answer your question around, so what do, essentially what do white people do, right? Like how do, how do they think of themselves in this time? And when we're talking about ancestors and I always say to my guests on the podcast, when they say, I don't really know how I'm going to be able to answer that question. And I tell them, look, you know, your ancestors were your, your ancestors and there's going to be people, your grandmothers or great grandfathers who taught you things or you learned things from and you have pride in that and it's important to own that and it's also really important to own what the what the what the lineage of whiteness carries with it what you have inherited and to be really honest and true about that that the privilege the superiority the harm that was done to black indigenous people of color as a result Mm-hmm. And then to think of yourself now in this time as a living ancestor who has an opportunity and a responsibility to show up differently so that you, so that your ancestors can show up differently. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. That just gave me yeah. chills. Yeah. I mean, I, as a white woman who, I, I, I mean, I, I know that, I know that I have done a lot of deep work on my own supremacy and and the tendencies that I have around it and what that has resulted in is a massive amount of shame. Yeah. Shame around what I have been conditioned to believe, shame around my implicit bias, shame around my, the ancestors that, that brought me to this place that yeah. perpetuated and ingrained in me and, and in many ways, imprinted on my DNA, things that I'm not proud of. Mm. And so, um, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a little teary eyed because the thought of now being able to think of how my nieces who are the, you know, the loves of my life will view me ancestrally. Right. Or how their children may look at the work that has been done, it, it just, it's very, it's just very moving for me. And that's, um, that is exactly what I, anytime I, you know, talk and, and when I write, I really want people who are white and who, ha- who have white privilege to understand you are going to feel shame and guilt. And that is an appropriate response to, having a full understanding of what white supremacy is and what you have inherited and what you participate in and what you could have been passing along and how you are impacting people like shame and guilt, I think are very 
appropriate responses. What isn't helpful is to stay stuck there and not know how to right. use, because it's information. Shame and guilt are information that something wrong was done. That something that went fundamentally against your values has happened. And just staying there, stuck in that, helps nobody. It doesn't bring us any closer to justice to stay there. What I encourage people to do is use it as information to then inform how you are going to show up differently because you didn't create white supremacy. Nobody who's alive today created, birthed white supremacy, but everybody who has white privilege benefits from it and impacts people of color with it. And so it's an opportunity and it's an invitation to say, how can I show up differently so that I do less harm right now in, in, in this life that I'm in? And how can I leave a legacy for those who will come after I'm gone? You know, yes, our, our children and our nieces and our nephews, but also, like I said, people who you may never meet, who are not in your family line at all, who somehow listen to your podcast, read your book, you know, read an article, you know, like I said, we talked about those technologies scanned our Twitter feeds. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and, and there, and the way that they looked at the world changed because of something you shared. Like it's, it's incredible to me. And, and, and I, I want to clarify when I say something you shared, I don't mean a, I don't mean a Facebook post, <laughs> social right. media, really, you know, really something, really how you showed up differently in your life. Right. What did you have the courage to do that your ancestors did not have the courage to do? One of the things that Robin and I often ask of folks that we're speaking with is, um, what is it that is breaking your heart right at mm. this moment? And it, it dawned on me as you were kind of expounding a little bit on the sharing aspect of this that it is in the identification of our brokenness and what it is that's causing us to feel deep pain and in some cases shame that yeah. we are then able to share from a point of truth and, yeah. and, and, and then, and then expound on that into a, into a way that it influences the world. Yeah. Um, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for gifting me with me personally with that today. I hope others find it as much of a gift as I did. I also love Layla, your focus on harm reduction. One of the things that I do as a theologian and ethicist, whether it's in the classroom at Duke or in the public square is try to do harm reduction because we know that supremacy culture is violent and does harm interpersonally on a micro and macro level. And so I really love your focus on how do we live in such a way that reduces the harm, whether it is online or in person. Um, it's so, it's so important as we try to dismantle this thing that has a grip on us. Yeah. So the person that I really want to credit in this moment is one of my peers in this work. Her name is Catrice Jackson, and she's a black woman who does anti-racism work, um, is an author, a number of books. Um, 
And she, in her teachings, really helped me to understand that white people, people who have white privilege need to understand you will not never be racist for as long as white supremacy exists. There is no way that you will stop doing harm. The aim is not to become this perfect person who never harms, but the focus is on doing less harm. How can I be less harmful? And I think what I really appreciate about that concept is that it takes it, it takes anti-racism work out of an understanding of it being reaching a destination, a destination of I become an ally, I become an anti-racist, right. I go on the journey, I do the work, and then I reach the end destination of never doing any more harm again versus being in a daily, lifelong practice yeah. of anti-racism. And I described it recently on my UK book tour as you wake up every morning and you hit the reset button and you ask yourself, how am I going to show up today, today in the practice of anti-racism? How am I going to show up today so that I can do less harm? Yeah, that's great because we often talk about being in relationship with people versus a transactional relationship. Right. And so, you know, and this is the influence of capitalism that motivates mm-hmm. us to make every engagement with someone a transaction as if right. we're getting something from someone, you know, extracting something. And so mm-hmm. this orientation of just with yourself of how do I do less harm is a more relational approach than an arrival or a destination that becoming anti-racist is, is an arrival. Um, in my scholarship, I talk about becoming and we're in a moment of becoming right now. And we have a, we have a choice to make. We either lean into becoming or we don't. And if we right. lean into becoming, then we are on a journey both with ourselves and with our fellow humans. And so we are really trying to maximize this moment of becoming because I'm thinking about the seven generations that will come after me and how That's do I, right. how do I plant seeds for the seven generations that will come after me? That's right. That's right. I, I love that, that the word becoming, um, you know, I, I often think about how I just personally, I'm in a constant state of ever becoming, I'm never going to reach, a final destination of yeah. Layla being perfect, which was a hard lesson I had to learn because I am also, you know, conditioned into supremacy culture and yeah. into capitalism culture. There's this idea that if I can get all the pieces right together, I will become perfect and I will have arrived. For me, of moving into I am ever becoming until the day I die, I will be becoming has been just life changing for me. Yeah. I think, you know, when you said that we're in a time right now of becoming, absolutely, but we're also always in a time of becoming. Absolutely. And the, the question though is, am I consciously, intentionally becoming? Yeah. Or am I just reacting to everything that's around me? And is the person that I am becoming just a, a result of reactions and, um, just un- unconscious responses um, 
you know, that for me is the difference between somebody who is, who is really endeavoring to live as a good ancestor versus somebody who just hopes it works out. Right. right. <laughs> well, and, and there's a, there's a real thing right now around panic and fear and anxiety. I mean, you know, Kierkegaard, there's some truth in Kierkegaard here that we live with this deep existential anxiety right now. Yeah. And we, and we, and we have a choice to make whether we yeah. consciously say, we're going to respond in a grounded way or react from a place of fear and panic. Right. I think times such as these, you know, I'm a very, uh, I'm a Muslim woman, you know, my religion and my spirituality are very important to me and they inform everything for me, especially the work that I do out in the world. And so times such as these remind us, they're certainly reminding me of how, uh, being a human being, you know, we think that we are God of the world. Mm-hmm. We think that we can control things and we can, um, we can make things happen the way that we want them to be. And times right. such as these, our control, our sense of control and safety are really just like <laughs> the, the rug is pulled out from under our feet. Out the window. <laughs> right? Just completely. And, and we're being asked to, to look in the mirror and to confront what does it mean to be me and what does it mean to be a human being? And one of the things that I have had to learn on my journey, my personal journey is about owning the complexity of what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. That I'm both as a human being really fragile and vulnerable. You know, I can <laughs> right now. I have to socially distance myself from the rest of the world in case I get sick. Like we're very vulnerable as human beings, but we also have courage and heart and love and strength and resilience and all of these other things. And it's so, I found it personally so helpful to own that complexity of my humanity so that I am able to sit in the, sit in those very real feelings of fear and um and anxiety and yet not have them take me over um too much because I know I've also survived a lot. And I know humanity has also survived a lot. Right. Right? When we think about what humanity has been through and we have survived a lot. And now we see, you know, like we were saying about social media, you'll see the best and worst of humanity on social media, especially. Oh, yeah. You're you're seeing people like physically fighting over toilet roll. Right. In the supermarket. And you're seeing people in Italy singing from the balconies. Yeah. Right. Right. Like it's, it's like two different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Where, you know, and we are, we're less than a week in and we've already reached lament. (laughs) And, and yet we know from how much humanity has been through since our inception, um, how far down the line lament actually arrives. Right. And, and, and yet we feel as if we're, and many feel as if they're already at that stage. It's going to be a very long process for them. <laughs> exactly. Cause many of us are, are very spoiled and we've never, no, I was right. saying, to, I was saying to my husband, you know, we are a, a generation of people who haven't had, I mean, not all of us obviously across the world, but certainly in our experience, 
I haven't had to live through what my parents had to live through. You know, both of them experienced geographically in the places that they, that they grew up in genocide, Mm -hmm. you know, revolution. Um, I never had to experience anything like that. I have no idea what that, that kind of fear. There are certain things that my mother to this day fears because it reminds her of what she felt like as a six-year-old, seven-year-old girl. And they were going through having to hide in their homes. Um, and so we don't, there's so many of us that are not used to that. We haven't lived through world wars. We haven't lived in a time where the whole entire world, the whole entire world is going through this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there is no, there is no cure as yet. Right. And we don't know what to do with that. And it reminds me, you know, bringing it back to talking about supremacy culture, one of the questions that I often get asked in interviews and while on my book tour was, you know, do you, you know, what gives you hope or do you think that there will ever be a time when what supremacy, you know, is, you know, no longer exists, is dismantled. And interestingly, I'm always asked that question by people who are white. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the way that I interpret it is as those who have the most privilege are the least used to discomfort. Right. And so they are the first ones to seek out certainty that comfort is coming back. Yeah, they're the least imaginative in my experience. Right. And it's kind of like, okay, but do I really have to do this anti-racism work for my entire right. lifetime or think, you know, do you think it's, if I, <laughs> if I dip my toe in, do you think it will be, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm joking with it, but truly, um, when I speak from the, from the perspective of especially black people, black people globally, you know, the African diaspora all over the world has had to live with being treated as the most inferior race in this world. Right. And we don't ask that question. Is there, is it coming within our lifetime that anti-blackness will be over soon? Because we just know we've lived through it through generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And white folk, white folk think if they work really hard and really fast at it, that it'll just stick. Right. And, and, and they won't have to, <laughs> it's like taking a college course. Like once I have the information right. and I do that and I write the final paper, like I'm free That's of my, right. I'm free of my supremacy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and it's very, I love that you've used that example because there's so much safety in being in an examination room. Mm versus mm-hmm. being out in the in the streets, having to really lose things, having yeah. to really have your entire life changed. You know, I say to people, look, there's a difference between reading me and white supremacy and doing me and right. white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, re- reading it will give you a really thorough intellectual understanding. And that's it. That's all it will give you. A thorough intellectual understanding it will give you terms. It will give you words. You'll be able to have a debate. You know, you'll be able to have a conversation. You will make zero changes right. that actually move the needle forward. Because it is to be a praxis. It is, it is to be a praxis. It has to be. And, and to be a practice, it has to be personal. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so we want people to read your book. Uh, we it, there's an audio version and there's a book version. We want people to read yeah. it, but we want people to do more than just read it and consume it. We want people to practice it and embody it. We talk here 
at Activist Theology Project a lot about embodiment and the somatic practice of dismantling the bullshit in our lives. And right. we we want people to read it, yes, but we want people to be oriented in this way of ending white supremacy, uh, which is why we had Leila Saad on the podcast today, because we believe when we join together and we bridge with our radical difference, we get a, a little bit closer to being a little bit more freer. Yeah. Layla, can you let folks know where the best place to follow you, um, where, where folks can find your work? Yes. So, um, I have two websites, my website and the book's website. So my website is com, and you'll find, um, that's my kind of virtual home and you'll find my podcast there as well. Good ancestor podcast. And then the book is at me and white supremacy book.com. And there's a bunch of links up there where to find it, um, where to buy the, 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 it's available as a hardcover book. It's available as an ebook and it's available as an audio book. Any bookstore that sells books, you will be able to find this book or you can request it. Um, make sure to support your independent, your local independent bookstores as well. Yes. Very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, the only social media platform that I use is Instagram and you can find me there at Layla F. Saad. Great. Perfect. Friends, go to those places, get to know Layla Saad. Uh, she's amazing. Her work is amazing, but we don't want you to consume it. We want you to practice it. Yes. Amen. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> and I would say, can I just say, can I just say a last piece on that? The practice, please. You know, the book, the book is, I don't mince my words. You know, you can tell from the title, my aim is to be very direct in this work and to really cut through the noise to get to the heart of things. And so I make it very clear at the start of the book, look, you're going to feel really confronted in this work and you're going to feel um, uncomfortable and you're going to feel overwhelmed and you're going to feel insecure and all of these things are going to come up and I'm not going to be able to protect you from that. And it's not my job to protect you from right. it either. At the same time, there is this underlying thread, this underlying foundation um, that holds my work together, which is this idea of being a good ancestor that we talked about today. And that really speaks to that this work has to be sustainable, that it cannot be a one and done thing. And it cannot be something, you know, the aim is not to beat you over the head with it so that you feel such guilt, shame, low self-worth that you will be motivated to, to show up in anti-racism just as a, from a place of feeling bad. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not here to coddle anybody, but I also, my work is not about shaming for the sake of shaming, you know, making people feel bad for the sake of it. That is, that is replicating supremacy culture. Yeah. Right. Even as you read the book and you start to work through the exercises, I really encourage you to remember the real thing holding all of this together is love. Mm-hmm. And it's love, just and love, right? Us, right? I mean, right. more love, more courage, more hope reduces yeah. the bullshit, right? And and love isn't always fluffy and nice and making right. you feel good about yourself. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's the kind of love I'm here for. <laughs> Layla, thank you so much for the labor and coming onto our podcast and 
giving our listeners um, uh, just a window into your work and into your story. Uh, we hope and pray for the people in Qatar and in your community and context uh, remain safe and healthy during this global pandemic. And you are welcome anytime on our podcast. So we look forward to having you back on at some other time. Thank you. And please stay safe as well. And to all the listeners, please stay safe, look after yourselves and look after each other. Indeed. A perfect final word. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week. Hi there. Layla Saad reached out to us after we had recorded this podcast and asked us if we would mind making a quick clarification. We had a conversation about how many of us haven't lived through world war or warlike conditions, but we recognize that this actually isn't true. There are people around the world right now who have lived through or are living in such conditions. And we recognize that it is part of the privilege that we each have that allow us to not have experienced that. It's the privilege that we hold that allows us to not be able to imagine what that must be like. Thanks for allowing us to offer that clarification. And should you have any questions for any of the three of us, please do reach out. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support the podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com. And click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray, our friends. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Hands dirty.